Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for finding 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 me. Thank you for hearing 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 me. Thank you for healing 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 me. Thank you for saving 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 me. Thank you for loving 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 me. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's so weird looking out at all these fans everywhere. Just hit somebody next to you, okay? Get it out of your system right now. Just hit them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Craig's a fan. Yeah. Okay. Um, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to break into groups of four or five, okay, in just a minute. And you're just going to tell somebody your name, and then I want you to share this with them. Ask yourself this question. 
What is uh, something, what is the best thing you ever read, okay? And it can't be the Bible, okay, because this church, everybody knows that's the right answer. can't be the Bible. Best thing you ever read. I mean, something that kept you up at night, that made your heart race so you could not sleep, that you could not wait to read, okay? Go ahead, turn to your neighbor and share that. Four, three, two, one... Three quarters, one half, one eighth, one thirty second, zero. So, what were some of the things that were, that were the best things you ever read? What were they? Paralandra. Paralandra, C.S. Lewis book. What else? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, The Shack. What, what other things? The Source. What else? Shampoo bottles. What? Huh? Hunt for Red October. Okay, other things, fiction. What are other genres? Yeah, Bill. Robert Ludlum, Robert Ludlum mystery. Her husband's love letters. Ooh, that's good. Okay, let's pray. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Bingo. All right, um, Father, we thank you so much for your love for us and. Uh, Lord, tonight as we meet, we pray that we would be open, broken, and fertile ground for your word, for your gospel. And Lord, as we talk over the next three weeks about what it is to be a biblical church, I pray that you would uh, fill us with your very self. Lord Jesus, you said that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that you're there. So who are you sitting next to? Where are you in this room? Help us to see you. Help us to surrender to you. The living word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Okay, moms. Amen. That was long enough. All right. Let's uh, look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, or 1 through 4, and then down through verse 9. Okay, this is what it says. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, and the them are the Israelites in the wilderness, the Israelites in exile. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It did not meet with faith in the hearers. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Um, And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore, I'll read the in-between part, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, which was unfaithfulness. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And now we're back on the screen. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Word of God is living and active, powerful, effective, and sharper than any two-edged Machaira is the Greek word. That was the word for the Roman short, short sword. Uh, it was like a dagger, um, like a large, sharp knife, a knife. And yet countless times, I have fallen asleep right on that knife. I mean, a full, a full face plant right, right there into the open word of God, and I didn't get cut. Didn't seem very sharp. Countless times when I was a kid, especially, I'd tell myself, I got to read a chapter of the Bible before I fall asleep to be spiritual. And then I'd wake up along about three in the morning, you know, peeling those onion skin pages off my face, stuck with oil. And all I have to show for it is nose prints, cheek prints throughout the book of Romans. Didn't seem very sharp to me. Hardly a sharp two-edged sword. I tried to study it, just like I'd study and read my homework. I mean, I really worked at it, but I really wasn't that good at reading as a kid. I was in the, in the slow group. Reading was always hard and dull, anything but sharp. So often, Scripture has hardly seemed sharp. And even if it was a knife, why would you want to read it? I mean, the machaira was used by the priests in the stone temple to cut open the sacrificial animals, lay them open naked on the altar, their blood bearing testimony to the covenant. Oh, that sounds really fun. <laughs> Have a little of that before I go to bed. How would that give me rest? The Word of God, living and active, energos, effective, sharper than any two-edged dagger. What is the Word of God? Well... If you've been around church for a while, you know that Jesus is the Word of God. That's what John chapter 1 says. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke the Word of God, and it's written down, recorded in Scripture. In the New Testament, Paul refers to his message as the Word of God, and that's also written down and recorded in Scripture. Here in Hebrews, it seems to reference Psalm 95, which is Scripture, and also Jesus, who's the high priest. Theologians call Jesus the Word of God with a capital W, and they call Scripture the written Word of God with a small w. 1 Peter 1.25, Peter writes this, The Word of the Lord abides forever. That Word is the gospel that was preached to you. Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes, The Word of truth is the gospel of your salvation, your salvation, personal gospel. We, knew the new, we know this, I think, that the New Testament is gospel, but the author of Hebrews says that the gospel was also preached to them in the Old Testament. And Scripture says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So the foundational meaning of all Scripture is the good news of our salvation 
in Christ Jesus. See, gospel means good news. It's good news. Good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might have life. It's good news. God loves you. He loves you. And come to think of it, there is one particular genre of literature that I have never had any trouble reading. A genre that always kept me interested and did cut me like a knife. In sixth grade at South Elementary School in Littleton, Colorado, in Mrs. Black's class, they tried to teach us appreciation for every genre of literature. Mystery, poetry, adventure, but it was all dull. Every genre, dull. Except one. And that one genre of literature was illegal in Mrs. Black's sixth grade class. <laughs> it was illegal, not because it was dull. In fact, it was so exciting that it eclipsed all the other literature, and so she had to make it illegal, distracted from all the assigned reading, and it was dangerous. It was dangerous because it could cut into the heart of a sixth grade boy and leave him incapacitated. If Mrs. Black found this literature, it was taped immediately to the classroom door in an effort to shame the participants. For you see, when this literature was addressed to someone else, by someone else, it was stupid. It was ridiculous. It was silly. But when it was addressed to you, pierced your heart. It was the literary genre of personal gospel. On a few occasions, I received this literature by stealth under my desk. It would read something like this. Dear Peter, I think you're cute. <laughs> I like you if you like me. If you like me, check this box. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about love letters. Uh, personal notes of affection, personal gospel. And that, my friends, is good news. Good news that one of these amazing, uh, shocking, strange, intriguing creatures called a girl likes you. Yeah. Well, the Bible is many things. Next week, we're going to talk a, a bit more in detail about that. It's history, poetry, songs, parables, drama, adventure, it's instructions, it's law, rules, judgments, but all for the sake of gospel, the good news of your salvation. Gospel, good news, God loves you. Scripture is the love letter from the great bridegroom, to his bride. It's the love letter from the father to his prodigal son saying, come home. It's not God's little instruction book or a manual for successful living or just more rules or deep thoughts or basic instructions before leaving earth. Jesus said the words he spoke were spirit and life and that his spirit would come and teach us. His spirit applies the words of scripture individually to our hearts through faith. 
The word of God is living and effective. Well, since sixth grade, I've forced myself to read out of expediency, and actually I've become pretty good at it. By the time I was in college, I was getting trophies, awards for reading and regurgitating. I mean, I was great at this. About 36 hours before a final exam, I would lock myself in my room with all of my books. I hadn't studied all semester. I'd take Folgers coffee crystals, put them in a glass of water, pour tap water in there, mix it just so it's liquid, gulp it down as quick as I could, brush my teeth so I didn't throw up, and then just ingest all this information like into the night and through the next day right up to the last minute. When I go into the test and I just blah, regurgitate it all back out onto the test. Names, dates, places, uh, systems, formulas. And I'd get an A. I was awesome at it. And it was absolute torture. I mean, it was just torture. But it was the price that I was willing to pay to make the grade. What price are you willing to pay in order to make God's grade. Well, if you read Scripture that way, the way I studied my assignments in college, you've already flunked. You failed. If you read Scripture to get any grade, you've already failed, for you're not reading by grace through faith, and you're certainly not entering His rest. Something's wrong. Hebrews 4.2, I'll read it again. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, for it was not met with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed, who have faith, do enter that rest. We read in faith, empowered by the Spirit. You, you know, all that reading that I did in college, which was a whole bunch of reading, Pelagic sedimentation, foraminifera, differentiation, all that reading, I, I barely remember any of it. I was hardly affected by any of it, hardly moved by any of it. It was not living and effective, not powerful, $30,000 or whatever, and four years of restlessness flushed down the toilet. So what it was, I think. None of that reading in college was very effective. Except, of course, for my personal gospel reading. I mean love letters. These love letters. I still have them bound together with this silver string. And now it almost seems sacrilegious to use the word read in reference to those letters. I mean, it wasn't work. And I didn't just read those letters. I consumed those letters like a starving man eats bread or drinks wine. That's how I consumed them. And amazingly, there was no test. No test. Or at least not a test like that other kind of test. Susan and I started dating in 11th grade. But after graduation, we told each other that, you know, we were free to date other people when we went off to college. I went off to college a free man. Susan was in Durango, I was in Boulder, and I was free to date whomever I wanted. But she wrote letters. Gospel letters. Love letters. 
every couple of days in the Kittredge dormitory mailroom, people would walk in and it would smell of perfume. If Alan Parsons in here, is he down with the kids? Alan, I don't know if he, well, you were over in the dorm, yeah, but the whole mailroom would smell like perfume because Susan would send me one of these letters. In fact, you can still kind of smell it in the letters. I didn't have any perfume, and so what I would do is I'd rub right guard stick all over <laughs> my, in fact, I, I have a scratch and sniff uh, right guard can. See, I drew that in one of my letters. I, found that scratch and sniff so she could smell me the way I smelled her. But anyway, when her letters came in the mail, I just like absolutely devoured them. I devoured them. Of course, my roommate, Ronald Schultz from Lakewood, Colorado, he thought they were just ridiculous the way I'd sleep with the letters. I'd kiss the letters. I'd hold and caress the letters. But he, he thought they were ridiculous because, you see, they were not addressed to him. <laughs> They were addressed to me. They said, I love you, Peter. See, the word of God is the gospel of your salvation. Do you get what I'm saying? It's addressed to you. It's the ultimate love letter applied by the very spirit of God resident within you. And it's addressed to you from your lover, your creator. And he is far more mysterious, intriguing, passionate, complex, and fascinating than any sixth grade girl in Mrs. Black's class. And if you believe that, if you read that with that in your heart, I mean, if you have faith in that and read in that faith that the word of God is addressed to you, then it won't be dull. And you'll want to read. Remember the first time I read the Bible really believing that? It was like the words just jumped off the page right out of those old nose prints in Romans and pierced my heart. King David writes in Psalm 119, I have treasured your word in my heart. I will meditate on your precepts. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I cleave to your testimony and I have committed myself to a strict regimen of intensive biblical exegesis and the practice of sound hermeneutical principles. But you know he didn't say that last part. Why? Because he didn't have to commit to it. The man after God's own heart delighted in it. You know, when Susan's love letters would come in the mail, I wanted to read them. One thing that I never said was, gee, Ron, I'm sorry, I can't play ping pong now because I agreed with Susan that I would spend a half hour a day of inductive study in those letters that she sent. No, I wanted to read them. I devoured them. In fact, uh, this is what I'd do. I don't know if you can see this on the screen. At the time, I didn't know this, but this was called exegesis and hermeneutics, but this is what I did. Nobody had to give me a class on it. I just did it. This is how you read good news addressed to you. Number one, when I would get a letter from Susan, I'd read it start to finish. Not like a verse for a day. How do you understand a letter if you read a sentence a day? I'd read it start to finish. And I'd go back and I'd read it through again, again and again and again and again and again. And then I'd go back and I'd read a sentence like, Peter, you are so much more handsome, more handsome than even Andrew Trawick and Alan Parsons combined. I'd, I'd, 
You know, I'd read that, I'd go, that's really good. And then maybe I'd go back and I'd memorize that sentence. That would be a, a memorized sentence. And if there was a word that I didn't understand, I'd look it up. Like, stupendously handsome. I and mean, what does that mean? So I'd have to go look that up. If there was something that troubled me, I'd give Susan a call. Either way, I'd give her a call. You know, when you read God's word, call him, talk to him uh, about it. And uh, this I'd do. I'd read the parts in terms of the whole and the whole in terms of the parts. In other words, I'd pay attention to context. I'd also remember our history, and I'd think about where she was when she wrote it, the context of the letter. And I'd picture her and the events that she was uh, talking about. I'd meditated on it till it was like I, I was there, and I'd read between the lines so I could commune with her spirit, not just the letter, but between the lines. You know, in the Bible, the Word of God and Scripture are never quite equivalent terms. I think that's because unless the Spirit of God applies the Word of God, unless the Spirit applies the Word of God, then Scripture's just ink on the page. And you see, Susan's letters were not just ink on the page. I devoured them. And you know what? No one ever told me to do it. I delighted in them. I digested them. And get this, I, I never had to consciously ask myself, hmm, how does this apply to me? What would be three practical application points that I could carry out in my daily living? What would be three action steps that I could take from this letter today? Hmm, oh, I have one. I could tell people that I have a girlfriend. Two, I could call her. Yeah, I could call her. Three, I could kiss her. I could kiss her and not kiss other girls. You see, I didn't have to apply her letters. Why? Because I digested them. I internalized them. You apply makeup. Helps you look good. Helps you do an act to impress other people. You apply makeup, but you digest food. Jesus quoted scripture to Satan, and this is what he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That scripture is Deuteronomy 8. It refers to the manna with which God fed the Israelites when they were in exile and in journey out from exile. The word of God is manna for your exile. The Word of God is food, and He wants you to digest it. You know, the shepherd feeds his sheep, not so the sheep will regurgitate the food right up on his feet, as if that would impress him. Oh, I see you've been eating good sheep. Why does the shepherd feed his sheep? So that the sheep would ingest that food, and uh, the food would be transformed into life into wool. He don't want to see it. The shepherd is unimpressed that you can regurgitate John 3, 16. For God's all of the world. Blah! No, digest that. Let it come out as life. Your life. God is not at all impressed with Bible trivia. Chew it. Digest it. And one other thing. You know, the shepherd doesn't chew the food for the sheep. 
Nobody chewed Susan's love letters for me. I, I delighted in doing that. Now, I'm an under-shepherd. Some people think my job is to build a pen for the sheep and every day toss some pre-chewed food pellets into the pen. You know, like ABC Bible verses. Remember ABC gum when you were a kid? Hey, dude, you want some gum? It's ABC gum. Sure. Already been chewed. <laughs> and then you hand them the gum. No flavor. No nutrients. Don't settle for ABC Bible verses. Already been chewed. The shepherd's job is not to build a pen for the sheep and chew their food for them. The shepherd's job is to take the sheep on a journey. If you've been to the Holy Land, you know that. You see them all over the hills walking around with their sheep. What are they doing? They're looking for green grass so they can find some green grass, point the sheep to the green grass as if to say, hey, look, some green grass hasn't been chewed for a while. Don't know what it means. Let's chew on it. That's what shepherds do. Chew it. Digest it. The Word of God is food that changes you. You know, it changes you in ways you can't even comprehend. You know, few, if any, comprehend food, understand food. Nobody understands food. All the vitamins and minerals and metabolism and all that stuff. And yet, if you don't eat it, you die. If you ingest and digest food, it will change you even while you're sleeping, when you do nothing, when you're at rest. And so I ingested Susan's love letters, and they changed me. Even while I was sleeping, I mean, my dreams changed. And then changed my life without striving from the inside out, not by works, lest I should boast. Now, don't misunderstand me. I hope that everybody here would seriously commit to the hard work of biblical study, Bible study, but only, only, only for the sake of reading the letter. Soren Kierkegaard said, imagine getting a love letter from your beloved, but it's written in another language. Well, what would you do? Well, right away, you'd go grab translations all you could, and you'd sit down, and you'd do the hard work of translating the letter. If someone walked up to you and said, hey, I see you're reading your sweetie's love letter, you'd say, no, I'm not reading it. I'm doing the hard work of translating it, and I'm about ready to pop because I want to read it. And once you got it translated, what would you do? Well, then you'd go out by yourself, shut the door, and you'd read it. Ingest it. The tragedy is that there are people who can parse every verb in all of Scripture but they've never read the love letter. <laughs> and maybe you've believed those people when they've told you that unless you can parse every verb, you can't read the letter. Kierkegaard went on to say this, the one most qualified to determine a love letter's meaning is the one to whom the love letter is addressed. The ones that receive the letter in faith the one whose goal is to be mastered by the love in the letter rather than to master the letter. Do you know you can love love letters more than the one that writes them? There are people that love the Bible more than Jesus. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and it's they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Years ago, I was going to use Susan's love letters for an illustration in some talk I was given. I was going to use them. And I went to my underwear drawer where I kept them, and they were gone. And I knew why. 
My wife is like a cleanaholic freak. And so I went down and I said, where are those dang love letters, Susan? And it, it, we got into an argument and a fight. I mean, it was a really bad day, you know. I was really mad at her and everything. And make it worse, it felt like the Holy Spirit was tapping on my shoulder all day long saying, hmm, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Do you love the letters more than the one that wrote them? You do know it was the Bible scholars, the scribes and the Pharisees that crucified Jesus, the Word of God. And they did it with the strictest attention to every letter of the law in the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Word of God written. I mean, they loved the love letter more than the lover. And since then, Scripture's been used to justify almost every kind of evil imaginable. Apartheid, genocide, slander, gossip, betrayal. That's because the scriptures aren't read in faith as personal gospel. But if you read them in faith, you won't use them as much as you will allow them to use you. You won't master them as much as you will allow them to master you. You won't comprehend them as much as you allow Scripture, the Word of God, to comprehend you. Now, I should say, I comprehended Susan's love letters better than any of the literature professors at the University of Colorado. But really, these letters comprehended me. They smote me. By the end of my freshman year, Having gone to see you as a free man, I was smitten. The end result was not a master's degree in Susanic Romantic Literature of the early 80s. The end result was that on the night of October 30th, 1982, I dropped to my knees and, and I begged her to marry me. You know, the Bible ends where the world will end at a wedding banquet the consummation of the eternal covenant, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus and us, his bride. The word of God is a love letter written to you who would receive it by faith, living and effective. My love for Susan, I think, grew more that year than any other year, the year of our exile, one from the other, the year that I cherished her letters in exile like manna from heaven. We're in exile, my friends. This isn't home, but we have letters. But now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, that's really sweet. Scented love letters, that's just beautiful. But I'm sorry, I read that book. It is full of pain, it's full of tears, it's scary. That book scares me. Well, you know, this, this week, actually yesterday, I picked up these love letters and I just read the one on, on the top and it scared me. It scared me for Susan. This is, this is that, that page. She wrote this after I visited her one weekend and then had to leave. This is what she writes as part of that. After you leave, it's like all that has ever made me happen, happy is taken away. I started to run after you down the hill as she left and then realized it was pointless. 
I came back to my room and sat in silence trying to fight the tears. I get so tired of fighting the tears. Did you see that? The letters stained with tears. I read that yesterday and I was scared. I was scared because when she wrote that letter, I was 19 years old. She had just turned 20. I mean, I was a 19-year-old kid and I realized she's giving her heart and soul to a 19-year-old pimply-faced kid who might just not return her love. And if I hadn't returned that love in 1980, would have killed her. Would have broke her heart, and I'm not saying that to be arrogant, because I know I was a geek, but for some reason she loved me. We well, see, the unreturned, unrequited love of God did kill him. Jesus is the Word of God, the love of God come to us. His love made him vulnerable to us. Do you see that? It's the love of God that makes him vulnerable to us, and so we nailed him, the heart of God. We nailed him, and we broke him on a tree. And my friends, love like that is intense. So the scriptures are stained with tears and sweat and pain and blood. Susan's old letters made me scared for her. Like the love of Jesus should make you scared for him. You ought to be scared for him loving someone like you. And Susan's old letters made me scared for me, the old me. Just like the love of Jesus should make you scared for you, the old you. Because like I said, I went to see you, a free man. But love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Look how she signed this letter. This is how she ended it. I can't stop the tears any longer. I'm crying because I love you so much. Yours forever, Susan. Forever. That's like a forever covenant of love. You know, I was reading these letters yesterday. I, I realized that if I would have tried to ignore those letters, they would have haunted me all of my life. You see, they judged me. How would I respond? They cut me. Do you know that's what judgment means, to cut? They cut me. They cut out whatever was not of Susan. She signed her letter with tears. God signs his letter with blood. I'm bleeding because I love you so much. Eternally yours, an eternal covenant of love, Jesus. We say, how can the word of God be a love letter when it's so bloody and so demanding? Well, don't you see, that's the way real love letters are. Instruction manuals, self-help books, cookbooks, rule books, study guides are not. They do not cut to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I went to see you, a free man. I was going to date around. I thought I wouldn't get married till I was in my 40s. I was a little confused about what I wanted out of life and what I wanted out of Susan, but those letters cut like down to the division of loving Susan and not loving Susan. They discerned the thoughts and intentions of my heart, and before Susan, my heart was naked and laid bare. That's right. I was a living sacrifice. 
like the sacrificial animals in the temple, cut open with a machaira, that, that their blood would bear testimony to the covenant. Under the knife that was those letters, I was a living sacrifice, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And so I stood before the sacrificial altar, and she came to me down the aisle holding the knife. It was bound in white leather with a little gold zipper, the word of God. An old man, like a priest in the temple, he bellowed out, Will you covenant yourself to her in all love and honor and all duty and service and all faithfulness and tenderness to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God, the word of God and the holy bond of marriage till death do you part and with a smile on my face <laughs> I said I will and I do you see that's crazy but because I believe the love in the letters all the fear pain and tears were eclipsed with wonder and I gave my life away that was the end result. I gave my life away in ecstasy. And then I rested. I rested in her arms. In this world, there's no place I'd rather rest than in her arms. Why? Because she really loves me. And resting in that love is powerful, effective. It bears fruit. Now, that's only an imperfect shadow of God's love for you. So don't get stuck. Don't get stuck at some broken picture of yourself and all the pain that you've experienced in this world. We've all had that. You see, I'm talking about your marriage to Jesus. Strive to enter his rest. Let the word cut you, comprehend you, and hold you, and that rest deep in your spirit will produce fruit. More fruit uh, than if you were to read and memorize the entire library at the Denver Theological Seminary. More fruit. All my assigned reading in college produced basically nothing. But those love letters ended up producing Jonathan, Elizabeth, Rebecca, and Coleman. I rested in her arms, and the fruit happened. <laughs> and so on the night that he was betrayed, in the midst of our exile, having been betrayed by every one of us, he took bread and he broke it. The word of God took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. It's the word of God. So let the word of God cut you? Let the Word of God comprehend you? Let the Word of God hold you? And let the Word of God impregnate you? It's seed. As you come to this table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and ingest the Word of God. 
See, it's the same thing that you're to do as you read your Bible, as you read his word, as you surrender to his love in your life. If you want him, we invite you to come to the table. Black, or the ribbons are juice, or wine, the ones without the ribbon are juice. They're both love. Believe his love for you and live. Amen. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are altogether worthy. You are altogether wonderful. You really are everything to me, even though I don't know it very well all the time. We worship you. We thank you for loving us, Lord Jesus. Amen. And now, before you go, by way of benediction, let me just say, if you struggle with this, you know, it's confusing. There are parts that scare you. Well, it's a very old book. Um, translated many times. You might need to get some translations. You might need to do some study. But I want you to remember that what this really is, is this. That's what it is. And I want you to read it, not so you can impress people at church functions. I want you to read it because he really loves you. And I want you to believe it. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name.